Well, how many people had turkey once? No, how many people had turkey twice? Yeah, how many are going for number three today, maybe? Right. How many people don't eat turkey? Yeah, okay. <laughs> awesome, folks. Well, we got a bit of a sparse group this morning, but we kind of expected that on this Boxing Day Sunday. Christmas falls at a bit of an odd time of year uh, for many of us this year. Uh, but here we are. There's folks that are joining us online as well. So hi, everybody. Uh, I'm just thrilled that we actually decided to gather this morning and that uh, we're going to actually hear from Scripture. We're going to hear about Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to encourage you by going through the words of that song because we're going to look at a song in Scripture today as well. And so you see those kinds of things all throughout Scripture where there's different poems and songs that are written Uh, And and it's really important that as we sing, as we express ourselves uh, through music, that we pay attention to what it is that we're actually professing. So uh, I I had a conversation with uh, Brian Elder. Mary's here. Brian's uh, playing hooky. He's probably sleeping at home. No, I'm guessing he's preaching somewhere, right? Uh, And we talked a little bit about that. He comes from uh, a tradition that is more uh, uh, liturgical in nature. And just how music is literally liturgy. It's us speaking words out, declaring things to God. So look at it that way. Like when you're singing, it's, just, it's not just a song. It's not just a melody. It's not just about what we like in music and what we don't like in music. It's actually us singing praises to Jesus Christ. And the words that we sing are far more important than the melody that we prefer. And that's uh, very similar when we read different passages of Scripture and and things like that. Like, we've been working through this Christmas story, through uh, a Christmas series that uh, Pastor Tamil had put together uh, with an an infinitum challenge where you guys were praying and and doing uh, um, uh, spiritual practices all throughout this Christmas season. And so I hope that you've been able to to dig into that a little bit. Uh, The reality is, is the way that we grow in Christ, the way that we um, just do this Jesus thing is we need to get to know him. We need to spend time with him. And so the Bible actually tells us that the way we do that is through practicing spiritual practices. And so that's what we've laid at your feet. That's what we've given you to do is ways to be able to do this, to draw closer to Christ and to make Christmas actually about who it's really about, which is Jesus. And so we've been working through this Christmas story in Luke. We celebrated the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. And we've been introduced to a bunch of different characters within the narrative. And we've been pointing out to you sort of the differences, the things about these specific characters that actually help us to hear the gospel message all within the Christmas story. And at first, we were introduced to Zachariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, who actually become John's parents. At an, uh, like a crazy old age, they become John the Baptist's parents. And, and Zechariah is visited by an angel. And if we remember his response, his response was like, well, how will I know? So it was fear and then questioning the angel. And what does the angel do? Mutes the priest. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Think of the imagery of that, right? The preacher's muted. Let's just take a moment and think about that. (laughs) 
So we've been introduced to them and we see their responses all within this. And and we see doubt and we see faithfulness and we see brokenness and we see imperfection. And then we're introduced to Mary and Joseph and this whole concept of a virgin birth. I find it really interesting how Christians default to believing the virgin birth, but then question things that are so clearly in scripture. But then the virgin birth, we don't question. I'm not saying you should question the virgin birth. That's a, a core Christian doctrine. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you're actually not Christian. But uh, like questions around that are like worthwhile. Start to explore the concept of this peasant teenage girl being impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That's not how real life works, right? And her response to this is... Okay. So you see the differences? Like Zachariah, oh, I don't know. Like, I think I need to know more. And then Mary, okay. Your will be done. I'll do what needs to happen. And then we're introduced to the shepherds and and how God used the least likely people, the low of the low, to be the first people that would take part in celebrating the birth of a king. Uh, These are not people that would be invited into a king's party. They're the low of the low, and yet that is who God sent his gospel message with first in all of Scripture. Now, today we're going to end this series, and we wanted to end this series utilizing Luke chapter 1, where it says Mary's song, probably at the the top of your, uh, your Bible. And Mary's song... Uh, This excites me. This is is so much fun because Mary's song gives us, it's a a song of praise. It's her now being overwhelmed by the fact that God has chosen her to birth the Messiah, the Son of God. And um, her song really gives us a window into what the, the coming kingdom, so in her context, the coming kingdom, in our context, the kingdom that has come and will be coming. So it's an already not yet kind of concept in our world, but it was a not yet concept in hers, but it was becoming a reality through her. And Mary's song gives us this beautiful window into what this kingdom of God is like. Mary's song is literally about an upside down and radically countercultural kingdom. As a matter of fact, did you know that this section of of scripture, verses 46 to 55, has actually been banned in all public readings in three different countries. You cannot read this passage of scripture in India, you cannot read this passage of scripture in Guatemala, and you cannot read this passage of scripture in Argentina. It's banned, right? Today. Today. It was banned years ago. Like, why, why would that be? Why would they not let people do public readings of this simple passage? It's because it's so countercultural. It's so countercultural, and it specifically, as you're going to see in a moment, threatens one specific kind of people. One specific kind of people, the rich and the powerful. They tend to go hand in hand. It's a beautiful picture, folks, of God's kingdom and the gospel that Jesus is ushering in. So let's open our Bible to Luke chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 46. 
So the angel Gabriel has visited Mary. Mary's response in verse 38, I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered, may your word uh, to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So you see her response of yes, may it be fulfilled, I'll do this. She goes and she visits uh, Elizabeth and we see the story of, the, of John jumping in the womb. And then Mary sings this song of praise. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now listen to this in the context of why would this be banned, right? For now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And remember who's singing this song? A woman. Think about the context of why this might be banned. So it's a woman singing praises to God because God is about to use her to usher in the Messiah. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud and listen, and in their, who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So not necessarily your actions, but those who are actually proud within. See, in our North American culture, we're all about actions. We're all about what things look like on the outside. God is actually all about what things look like on the inside. He's not as worried about your cleaning up on the outside. He's much more worried about cleaning up the inside. And that's what this passage is saying. He's performed mighty deeds with his arms. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. Do you see that problem? Bringing down authority, bringing down rulers. But he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he's sent the rich away empty. Think, think about that. He sent the rich away, filled the poor, but he sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and, to, and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. There's three specific things that I want to, to point out in this, but I want you to be thinking in that context, because to us, we're like, well, you know, I could see why maybe some people would get upset with this, but we would, we would never ban this. So as I'm preaching today, I want you to think in that context. And there's three main things that I see in this passage that I think are important for us to notice. First of all, in verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In so many ways, Mary was somebody in society at this time who would never have even been noticed. One, she was a woman. And in the time of Christ, a, a woman was just not noticed. They were disregarded. They weren't, even, uh, they weren't even viable to testify in a court of law. Their word didn't matter. And we see all throughout the gospel, the women being used to testify about Christ. And that's that countercultural tension that we don't catch in our North American culture because now uh, things aren't supposed to be like that. I say that tongue-in-cheek. What Mary is crying out here, folks, is in all of that context, I'm a nobody, and God took time 
to notice me. She, she calls it in her humble state. Now, a humble state doesn't mean that Mary looked around and saw that everybody was better than her and saw that, excuse me, and saw that everybody was better than her. Uh, she's not looking around and going, wow, like I'm lowly and I don't deserve anything and everybody else is better than me. Sometimes that's how we read humble state. It actually simply means in this text that God noticed her willingness to surrender. The, the humble state that this is talking about is the willingness to surrender to God. In spite of her poverty and her lack of power, God chose her. This is what she's saying in that passage. She's praising him. She's giving him thanks, which is absolutely wild when you think about it with the complexities around the fact that she's a virgin and that an angel has spoken to her and said that she will be with child. Imagine explaining that to Joseph. And that not only will she be with child through a miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, but that she will give birth to the way to the Messiah that her people, Mary's Jewish, that her people have been waiting for all her life. God noticed me. And what does she do when God notices her? She sings praise. Kind of goes with what we sang this morning, doesn't it? When God notices us, he calls us out of the grave. Now, God notices everyone. That's what this passage is teaching us, folks. This is the upside-down kingdom. Things are changing. In their culture at this time, God, they really felt God only noticed the holy ones. God only noticed the people who were the aristocrats, like I talked about last week, the rich, the powerful, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the ones who had the corner market on the scriptures. That's who God noticed. How could God possibly notice a teenage peasant woman? But he did. He did, and that's the first thing that this, got, that this narrative in the, in the story of Jesus is teaching us. Everything is about to change, folks, with the birth of this child, and it's powerful, and it's life-transforming, and it's counter-cultural. They're not going to like it. Because it's going to go against the grain of those who are important, those who are powerful, those who are wealthy, those who are running the nation. A good, a good example of, uh, of this kind of thing, I don't have to just use women. Anybody ever heard of King David? If you've ever read anything about the story of King David... Uh, the prophet Samuel is sent to go find the new king. God is wanting to anoint a new king because Saul has not done well. He's gone against God. And so he sends Samuel out to the household of Jesse, right? You all know this story. And Samuel goes to the household of Jesse and he says to Jesse, God has sent me to anoint one of your sons king. And so will you bring all your sons here to me? And Jesse's like, yep, I'll do that. I brings all of his sons. And Samuel's like, yeah, no, God, is this him? No, it's not him. God, is this him? No, not God. And Samuel's perplexed because he's like, I know God sent me to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Like, Jesse, what's, what's happening? Where, do you have any other sons? Folks, David was an afterthought to his own dad. 
he didn't even think to bring his youngest son to, in, to go in front of the prophet Samuel. David was an afterthought, and who does David become? The greatest king that Israel would ever have, and the one who would be the descendants of the Messiah. Do you see this in scripture? It's not just about women. It's just about the unnoticed. It's about the forgotten people. It's about Jesus changing the world and turning it upside down and saying, folks, your sinful perspective of things around you needs to change through the power and presence of Jesus Christ in your life. David was an afterthought. Mary was an afterthought. Oh, and Zechariah the priest, he was a real stud, right? Oh, I don't know. How am I going to know that this is going to happen? Yep, shut up. Do you see this? Priest, person of power, muted. The forgotten, the humble, lifted up. <laughs> this is the gospel, folks. It's, it's amazing. It's awesome. Another thing I want to point out in this passage, God, his, his mercy extends to those who fear him, verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Like, fear. We see the word fear and we're like, wow, what are you, like, oh, that's right, we're supposed to be scared of God. It's not the way the Bible uses the word fear. Actually, a better uh, rendition of fear out of the Greek text would, would actually really be awe. Right? So really, it would read, his mercy extends to those who are in awe of him from generation to generation. Now, I know, I know, like, especially the evangelical mindset of Christianity or the Catholic mindset where they love to instill fear, uh, they, they love the word fear, but the, the Greek language really reads awe much more than it does this sort of North American style of fearfulness of God. You're in awe of his holiness. You're in awe of who he is. It's saying that we are called to live our lives, every moment of it, not just at church, not just in certain times of the year, different things like that, but like every moment of our lives as Christians, we are to live in awe of God. And when we live in awe of God, how does God respond? Well, Mary says that God responds by extending his mercy to us. Think about how powerful that is. A good example of this to, for you to just understand awe, and I think I've taught about this before. Has anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? No, one person? So this analogy is going to suck. Okay, a few more. I got a few that just forgot about it, and then all of a sudden you remembered or something like that. Anyway, uh, right? Imagine... Like, what is the Grand Canyon? It attracts tourists, people from all over the world. The Grand Canyon, folks, in essence, is simply this, a gigantic hole in the ground, right? It's a beautiful hole in the ground, and it attracts millions of people a year. Now, put yourself at the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? Standing, we're, I'm standing at the edge, right? My wife's behind me, I'm a little concerned, Right? This is the best way to look at what's your response to this? Awe. Awe. It's different, right? It's, there's like fear in it, but there's awe in it. And you, you know how you know that there's awe in it? We keep going back. 
right? You keep remembering how that, that awe, how that felt. Like, that is so amazing. Awe causes you to keep going back because we feel small, right? When you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, I don't know about you, but do you, do you feel like you have control over this moment? Or do you feel small? Awe is actually, folks, about recognizing how small we are compared to what we are in awe of. And so a Grand Canyon, which is simply a hole in the wall, in the floor, in the wall, <laughs> a hole in the floor, that million, a hole in the, yeah, in the ground, that millions are attracted to simply because it creates awe. It's bigger than us. And actually, folks, when we feel small, it causes us to experience awe. Feeling small, which, think about that. That's rubbing you culturally, right? I don't want to feel small. I want to feel big. But to create awe, you got to feel small. You see that? And feeling small, meaning I'm standing at the edge, I'm in complete awe, but I know, like, I can't control this awe around me. It causes us to feel small, and what feeling small leads to, even though our culture says, you want to feel big, the Bible says feel small because small leads to humility. And that's my third point. Mary's song points out the differences in God's coming kingdom between the humble and the proud. She literally interacts with, she calls it the rich and the poor, but it's really just caught talking about the humble and the proud. You see, pride, or the rich and the powerful, the way she's describing it, are examples of people, I want you to hear this, because we're all this. They're examples of people who place all of their trust in themselves and in the control that they think they have. So when we read these passages, we're right away like, oh, God's against the rich. In scripture, don't think money. Don't think solely money when it's talking about the rich. Think pride versus humility. And so what the scriptures are saying is that in their time, those who are rich place all of their hope, place all of their trust in their riches which is pride, right? Whenever we're like, my control is what I need, that's pride. I know better and you should do what I say. That, that, that's pride. When our security comes in, in our bank account and the power that we have in the prestige of, of what we do for a living, say, that's pride. And what it does, folks, is it causes us, what pride does is it causes us to act like we know better than God. So what often is happening is we're a whole bunch of pride-filled, sinful human beings who are running around acting like we're our own little gods building our own little kingdom. And that's our reality, and that's what Mary's pointing out in this song. We act like we don't need God 
because we've got competency, because we've got wealth and power and prestige. But pride, folks, lacks surrender. Pride lacks surrender, and the whole gospel message, the whole concept of professing Christ as what? Your Lord means that you're surrendering to him as your king. And pride stops surrender. God calls us to let go of our prideful control and to surrender fully to him. This is exactly what Mary is singing praises about. What did Mary do in response to Gabriel, right? This crazy message, and she's like, okay. Compared to Zechariah, I don't know, how will I know? Right? Do you see this in the, in the Christmas narrative? This is really important stuff to notice of what God's kingdom is actually like compared to the little kingdoms we live in today. God honors humility and God hates pride. That's what Mary's singing about. And we're full of pride when we're full of control and we think that we know what is best and we're living out our plan rather than God's plan. Now, humility, folks, a simple way to just look at humility through the lens of Scripture, humility is when you take an honest look at yourself, okay? So, honest look at yourself. We really don't have a lot of self-awareness in our culture. And so it's about the ability to take an honest look at yourself in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's the way the scripture defines humility. We're taking a look at ourself through the lens of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Our need to feel small, to be in awe of God. You get it? But our culture, oh, I don't want to feel small. No, the Bible says, yes, you should feel small. That's what creates awe so that you can run out of the grave. You get it? It's countercultural. It's difficult. It's hard for us to, to fully grasp. But you have to learn to take an honest look at yourself in light of the awe of God, who he is, and how powerful he is, because all power rests in him, right? And in light of our sinfulness. So God's holiness and our sinfulness, that is how you create humility. And it takes humility, Scripture says, to find Jesus and to live your life in Christ. Pride, life out of Christ. It doesn't matter what you say. Inside, if it's full of pride, right, you'll struggle to hear the Spirit and you'll live your life the way that you want to. Humility is about life in the Spirit because we're in awe of God all around us in every moment of our life. You see, because pride says, you don't need a savior, you've got this. And we might accept the concept of needing a savior, but are we actually living as though we need a savior? When we think we've got things figured out, that we can control these kinds of things, that's, again, pride. Humility says that you're very aware of your sinfulness. How many people know they're, like, sinful, full of shame, like we're a mess? Right? 
Yeah, this is exactly where you need to be because then God comes in and, and in, in his awe, in his holiness, picks you up and removes the shame and the need for control because control is what stops your freedom. When you let go of control, now you're free. That's, like, there's lots of stuff about freedom out there, and it's totally misguided freedom. The only way to find freedom, folks, it's not through constitutions and governmental policies. It's through Jesus Christ and you, in humility, being in awe of who he is so that he can free you of your shame, so that he can free you of your sin. That's the only kind of freedom that the Bible ever talks about. You see, Mary's song calls us to look deeper at ourselves. And that's why it's outlawed in some countries because it's the ones who are full of pride and who love power, who are saying, you can't, you can't say those words. Those words are against me. And Mary's song calls us to surrender our entire lives. Think about what Mary just did. Angel appears this miracle's gonna happen, you're gonna have a child, all this crazy stuff, the Messiah is gonna be birthed through you. And Mary's response is pure surrender and praise. And it's calling us to surrender. She gave up her whole, how many people know when you have kids, there's no turning back, right? You just gave up your whole life. You're gonna be forking out money, you're gonna be forking out time, like all kinds of anguish when they're, teenagers, like all that fun stuff that we thought was a great idea when we thought, let's have a baby. When you have a child, you surrender your whole life. And, and I laugh because I, I talk to people like I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, right? Don't tell anybody. I know I look 30. But even in your mid-40s, when your kids are going off to college and things like that, you're like, yeah, I'll finally be free. And they, nope, you've surrendered your whole life. They keep coming back. This is what Mary's done. This song calls us to surrender not just moments of our life, but our whole life. But often, folks, we're more like Zechariah. You know, the religious priest? We're more like Zechariah because we want to spend more time questioning God or arguing about God than just saying, okay, God. And what does God do to Zechariah? mutes him. God wants us to, to simply answer yes. To simply answer yes to following him in every aspect of our lives. And this passage shows us what those ways are. We, we live our lives, we are to live our lives open to God's direction. Folks, I mean, we're living that right now as a family. Not everybody likes it, it's difficult, but you have to live your life based on God's direction. And when God says go, you go, right? That's not easy stuff because there's all kinds of humanness involved in uncomfortable things that God tells you to do. And so it's easier to just shut God off, isn't it? The other thing this passage calls us to do is not just to, to live our lives open to God's direction, but to be open to others that we would never expect to become part of our lives. 
to, to, to notice the poor and the oppressed, to not just ignore that part of society. What this is, this whole Christmas narrative, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, we've mentioned it a few times, but it's all about giving away our power, giving power up. Why? Because we recognize in awe that all power belongs to God. Power is not good for sinful human beings. So all power belongs to God, and what we're to do is to be constantly working at giving up our power and our authority. Think about what we actually do. Instead of giving up our power, we, we seek power. Instead of giving up our money, we seek wealth. But what the Bible's actually saying is give up your power and hold your money with an open hand. Because your money's not yours either. Because all power, money equals power, and all power belongs to God. This is something we've got to understand of how, where humility is actually rooted in. Because when you're holding it on to it like this, right, until you do this, you're trapped. This is trapped. This is free. And it has to do with all aspects of our lives. Anything that involves power, money, wealth, uh, status, all of that stuff. Stop clinching and open your hands. And then you'll be free. The worship team can join me up here. The moment we claim something to be ours is the moment that we begin to struggle with pride. The moment we begin to fight to say, that's mine, I deserve that, that's mine, we well up with pride and we become distant from God. And folks, this is countercultural. This is hard stuff. And this is all saturated in one song of praise by the mother of Jesus. Do you see what she's showing us in this Christmas story? God wants us to give up everything and to surrender all things to him. That is what Christmas is actually all about. I said to my wife, um, we, we messed up raising our kids. Anybody else join me? <laughs> I have great kids. We have wonderful kids. They... they they are very compassionate toward others. Like, I'm not in any way complaining about my kids. But where I feel like I, that we made a mistake was we embraced North American Christmas. And so Christmas becomes about gathering with family, eating turkey, and getting gifts. But according to Scripture, Christmas is all about surrendering and giving everything up. Do you see? You see this? The tension that lies there. And so I wish I would have raised my kids that every Christmas we would just like go work in a soup kitchen and serve the poor. Right? But instead I embraced North American culture. We taught them, you know, you should serve the poor, you should do this. But, you know, at Christmas though, we do family things. Because it's all about family, right? The scriptures... Don't talk about family the way you and I talk about family. The scriptures say this is family. The church. 
And look at what's happening in our culture today. People are leaving family because they can't make the time. They can't be bothered or they're upset about decisions that have been made as a family. But the Bible says it's not your immediate family. It's the church. The body of Christ is the family that we are called to celebrate Christmas with. And we're called to surrender all of self every year at Christmas. But yet, God is faithful, isn't he? He used a peasant woman who no one would have ever expected. He called shepherds who are the low of the low. He used Zachariah who questioned him. He used a barren woman who was too old and defied all the scientific odds of when she could have a child. And in the midst of all of that, a child is born who comes to save the world. That's Christmas. So will you stand this morning as we just sing one last song? And I want you to just, in your hearts, think of it as liturgy. Think of it as we're singing these words to God in praise, just like Mary does, because we are in awe of what he's done in our lives. Will you sing with us?